This is Client Conversations, a podcast from Charles Russell Speechlease. Hello and welcome to Client Conversations. My name is Simon Ridpath. I'm managing partner at Charles Russell Speechlees, an international law firm headquartered in London. And I'm here with Bart Peerless, our senior partner and one of our private client specialists. In each episode, we're going to be bringing you an informative and entertaining perspective on the world of private capital via a conversation about the life, stories and experiences of a special client guest. On this episode, we're joined by a guest who has worked in the financial services sector for more than 40 years and who has spent the last decade using the financial success to expand his focus that's been derived from that business expertise towards his philanthropic efforts. More on him later. As ever, I'd like to start the podcast by asking Bart to set the scene for us. What's your take on what we're seeing in private capital markets at the moment and how does it relate to our guest today? Thank you, Simon. There's so much going on in our world at the moment, and uh, at the risk of repeating some of the things I've said before, I want to focus on just a few of those things in this short introduction. Clients are having to think about an awful lot, and while we focus perhaps before on things that are economic uh, or geopolitical, I think some of the other things that they're seeing change as their world uh, are worth focusing on briefly. Uh, Those include Uh, information technology and our previous guest touched on how much that is changing if not disrupting our lives both professionally and otherwise but also what we now call ESG environmental social and governance issues that's being significantly felt in the world of fund management but of course we as a business have also invested significantly in that and it ties in very neatly with our guest today who was very early to spot the importance of linking uh, environmental issues with commercial solutions and recognizing that many of the world's most serious environmental challenges could only be solved through commercial solutions and hand in hand with private enterprise. Um, And so perhaps that's the best way I can introduce our guest, Sir Martin Smith, who I have known for many years. Martin, you read physics at Oxford, briefly went into industry, but then after a period at Stanford and McKinsey, decided to pursue a career in finance in the city where you ended up founding your own business, uh, which was very successful. Um, And as Simon said in his introduction, over the last few years since you've left very active life in the city, you've gone on to use the fruits of that success to to further your philanthropic aims. Uh, You've been a very long-term supporter in the world of arts. You've chaired English National Opera. You have chaired also the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment and been a board member of the Royal Academy of Music for many years. Um, In 2008, you founded what is known as the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment at Oxford, a groundbreaking, um, perhaps even disrupting uh, uh, academic institution. And I'd particularly like to spend some time talking about that today because it's become a very influential organization. But Having, having just given a very brief introduction to you and what you, you've done, um, how would you best summarize your career, perhaps at the start of the career in the city? Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to this discussion. Um, in answer to your question, Bart, I would say, like a lot of people who have an entrepreneurial bent, um, my career was not the result of a detailed plan. Um, So I left Stanford Business School in 1971 and, as you say, joined McKinsey 
And I just wanted to make sure that I'd had as much exposure to as many different kinds of commercial disciplines as I possibly could before I made a decision about what I was going to do. And McKinsey was an ideal place to do that. And whilst I was at McKinsey, I found myself working at least part of the time in the financial services sector. And I just sort of got a sense that this was an interesting place to work. There were some interesting people. It had a huge variety associated with it. It had an international component. And it was a marketplace in which somebody of even modest ability like me could actually make quite a lot of money in quite a short period of time. So <laughs> that was really the reason I latched on to the idea of doing something in financial services. Uh, I then went on and worked for a couple of the big American banks, as it happens. My time at business school was in America at Stanford Business School in California. I had an American wife, a lot of interest in going back and forth to America. Uh, so I worked for Citibank and I worked for Bankers Trust. And it was once only when I got the benefit of that experience that I got together with some colleagues and we set up our own business, Phoenix Securities. And in setting, or two questions, in fact, looking back to your time in industry, was there a particular reason why you left industry? Uh, was you then went to Stanford Business School and then going on to that second stage of your career, what made you want to set up your own business as opposed to working in other people's businesses? Well, I think the, the answer to the first question is, <clears throat> I mean, I, I have to come clean and tell you which particular bit of industry I was working in. Um, I, in fact, rather strangely, after I left Oxford, joined Guinness's Brewery in Dublin and became a brewer, which may seem an unlikely start. Why would point. anyone leave that industry? Well, exactly. Yeah. Well, first of all, why would anybody join it? I, <laughs> I joined it because it was the highest paid job in my year. So the average starting salary when I left Oxford was £850 a year and they were paying £1,435 a year. Wow. So that was good enough for me. And I have Irish roots and connections, and I rather like the idea of spending a bit of time in Dublin. Had a wonderful time there, but, but the more direct answer to, to your question is I think at a certain point I realized that if I didn't make a move after four and a half years, I think it was that I did that. If I didn't, it was such a comfortable perch to be on that I'd probably be there for the rest of my life, which perhaps in some ways wouldn't have been a bad thing. But I think I was uh, a little bit too impatient and a little bit too interested in what the world might offer me out, out, out there that uh, I decided the time had come to move on. Why, why did I get involved in starting a new business? Well, it's again, it's, it's funny how all the most interesting things in life, in my opinion, that ever happened to you happen through serendipity. They don't, as I said earlier on, they don't happen through planning. And the serendipity that caused me to become involved in starting a business in 1983 was frankly that I got sacked. So I was running Bankers Trust's business in Europe, Middle East and Africa. It was quite a, a big business and a responsible job and so on. But for a whole series of reasons, I found myself getting into a, a sort of slightly adversarial position with my lords and masters in New York. Maybe I was beginning to show signs of the need to get out and be an entrepreneur rather than be an employee. And one thing led to another. And as it turned out, I was sacked. And it's perfectly clear to me now, back in 1983, you know, people like me, generally speaking, did not just walk out of businesses to start 
new enterprises. You know, I was in a very senior position and had you know quite a lot of influence. I was well pay, paid, and and actually it's a sort of, sort of job a lot of people would have you know given a great deal to to to, to have. Uh, so people didn't walk out of those kinds of positions, but I suddenly found myself in a position where I had to figure out well, what was going to happen next. And it gave me that golden opportunity. I said, I remember saying to myself at the time, I'm going to take a year and see if I can create or become involved in something which is genuinely entrepreneurial rather than I had Bank of America and Merrill Lynch and all these different people sort of calling me up, offering me jobs. But I, I managed to keep them at bay until I found a way with some friends to start a new business and, and off we went. It's fascinating that you you put a time limit on it. I, I found of a year, which isn't actually that long a period of time. It is if you're out of work and you need to earn an income, and I appreciate that. But it's setting quite a high or, or a hard target for oneself to effectively be satisfied within one year that you've, you've counted upon a business that is going to work for you. Well, yes, and, and maybe I was a bit lucky that it, it did actually work out within that 12-month period. But why was it a year? It was a year, frankly, because I got a settlement of £70,000. Uh, I had a wife, a young family, a mortgage, beginning to take on school fees. And I could see that, you know, unless I got myself settled with some sort of decent income by the end of a 12-month period, I would be beginning to feel shall we say, a little bit of pressure. Yes. Uh, so that it was an arbitrary, an arbitrary period. In fact, as it turned out, the events that caused me to get involved in this new company called Phoenix Securities uh, began to take place within three months of my being sacked. So it, it was much, as it turned out, much less than a year. And what was, in setting up Phoenix, Martin, what was the opportunity you saw there? What was the gap? Maybe there wasn't a gap in the market, but where did you see you could succeed in a way that other businesses perhaps weren't? What we didn't know, and where we frankly did get incredibly lucky, was that this strange thing called the Big Bang was about to start. And this was as a result of, as you will recall, that Maggie Thatcher's government, Cecil Parkinson, achieving a, a settlement with the London Stock Exchange. Uh, which basically allowed uh, new outside participants to come into the stock exchange and introduced so-called negotiated fees, which completely changed the entire economic model, business model of the London Stock Exchange and resulted in a flurry of takeovers, which we now refer to as the Big Bang. And what was really needed more than anything else at that particular time was an independent advisor. People who are reasonably sophisticated knew the city, but had no ties to any of the participants. And by uh, some piece of good fortune, we got introduced to the partners of Wed Durdacker, which was the largest jobbing firm in London, um, who were beginning to consider what the consequences of all this for them were. And one thing that led to another, and we, in effect, put together BZW, which was the merchant bank of, of Barclays Bank. And like all good things in life, you know, once you've done it once and been seen to do it and do it properly, uh, you suddenly find there's a whole queue of people around the block wanting the same uh, sort of transaction. So so you make it sound, it's very self-deprecating in the way in which you, you tell it, that the ability to 
spot an opportunity when it presented itself. And I accept entirely the fact that opportunities arise, but the skill is taking them. And it sounds as if that's a, a regular feature in terms of, of the success of Phoenix and how you built that business. But perhaps with the benefit of hindsight looking back, what were the challenges around that time in terms of the three of you self-described as refugees trying to set up a new business? What was the availability of capital like? How well received were you in the marketplace? Um, it was your first experience of setting up a business. Um, did you make mistakes? Would you have done things differently with the benefit of hindsight? Or did you um, have a pretty clear steer and rely on good quality professional advisors, et cetera, et cetera? Well, you've given me a nice opening <clears throat> to say what the importance of uh, our relationships with professional advisors was at that time. So as I mentioned, we, we were three partners and two of the partners actually were very senior figures in the Eurobond market yes. prior to becoming involved in Phoenix. My experience had been primarily at Citibank and as I said, also at Bankers Trust. Uh, to the extent I had expertise, it was in the merger and acquisition field, but mainly private companies, frankly, not public companies, uh, you know, using the London Stock Exchange and, and uh, all that goes with it. Um, so there we were, two bond specialists and one sort of rather amateur M&A person. And yes, we could easily have tripped up uh, at an early stage had we not had access to some extraordinarily good advice. And we did, we made a, a point early on of saying that we don't know the answers to all these things, particularly the technical questions. And we better make sure that we're adequately protected. And we had good friends in the legal community uh, the accounting world and uh, and also amongst some of the stockbrokers to understand what the market situation was and so on. And I think we were, I mean, you're kind of saying, and I think it's true that we were very good at keeping our radar running and seeing when opportunities arose. But I think we were also quite good at accessing advice from people who could actually make sure that we were doing things in a truly professional way and a sort of seamless way as far as the client is concerned. I mean, the client, if you know how to do it and you handle it properly, can't tell whether the advice is actually coming from you or is coming uh, from your lawyer, but via you as the mouthpiece. I think we, we were quite good at that and we learned the trade. We learned it by doing it. No, that's fascinating. Fascinating. What was the most difficult thing you encountered in setting up your own business, do you think, Martin? That's an interesting question. I, I, in a funny sort of way, I'm, I'm going to disappoint you, I think, because I, I don't remember uh, difficulties in terms of structuring the business or uh, finding that we were against opposing forces of one kind or another, uh, because I think we were so busy from day one, particularly because of this rather extraordinary period that we found ourselves creating the business. So I think, I think the biggest concern we had actually was, was recruiting people and getting the right kind of people to, to join us. Because you know we were what they used to call in those days, it's very common parlance now, but we were a, an investment banking boutique. Mm -hmm. And investment banking boutiques sort of didn't exist then. So we were inventing it. So we'd frequently meet people who we thought were you know, potentially very interesting candidates to join us. Um, but, you know, they'd sort of say, well, is it secure? And is this the sort of thing I ought to be doing? And will I get the kind of recognition 
amongst my peer group by stepping out of Schroeder's or Morgan Grenfell or whatever it is and joining this funny little thing called Phoenix Securities. And I think that in a funny sort of way, that was probably the biggest challenge, which we saw. I mean, momentum and the development of the business basically provided the solution to that in due course. Because it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing and it seems a well-trodden uh, path now that boutiques obviously have flexibility, agility, the ability to spot opportunities and move towards them far more uh, with far greater dexterity than larger organizations. But if you're successful, scale comes alongside that challenge and the methodology and how you work and how you're still able to develop opportunities becomes ever more difficult with scale. So as you move through that phase with Phoenix and you started to gain the reputation and the respect of the markets, and you you lost the need to convince people. Did you find that changed your approach, your ability to to seize those opportunities, or was it something that you felt as a as a trio and a wider management group you were always able to maintain? Well, I think you know the greatest lesson I learned from the experience of Phoenix is surround yourself with people who have at least as great, if not greater, ability than yourself. And I think we were extraordinarily fortunate in. We were a group of people, all of whom got on extremely well and had a kind of common objective and a common view of life. And we managed to retain this entrepreneurial uh, flavor. And of course, you know, the, the thing that I can now say in retrospect is completely clear that the, the money we made out of Phoenix, the financial success that we had, was not actually out of doing the deals where we got paid well. And as the years went by and the deals got bigger, we got paid better and better. And so we were quite nicely compensated. But it was actually the fact that we sold the business four times. So we sold it, first of all, to Morgan Grenfell, who were in need of a new chief executive, following, funnily enough, the Guinness affair, which had a certain irony from my point of view. Um, and my partner, John Craven, then became the chief executive of Morgan Grenfell. They bought our firm. Then Deutsche Bank bought Morgan Grenfell, that enabled us then to buy ourselves back out again yes. for a modest fraction of what they had paid for us. <clears throat> and then a few years later, uh, in 1997, we were able to sell our business to one of the feistiest American investment banks called Donaldson, Lufkin and Generette, DLJ. And then DLJ itself, in turn, was, was sold to Credit Suisse in 2000. So the accumulation of capital, frankly, came from those transactions, building a track record and selling the track record, yes. rather than the day-to-day -day, um, doing of deals. But again, it's about people and perspective. As with so many businesses, particularly in that sector, people respected the business, but it was the people behind the business that mattered, which always keeps you marketable and in demand if you do a good job. I think that's a perfectly fair comment. I mean, it is completely a people's business, just as Charles Russell is. I mean, the reason I'm sitting here is that, as Bart kindly said, we met in, it was about the time we were selling to, to DLJ. DLJ in 1997. So the reason I'm sitting here now is not simply because I think Bart is a good lawyer. We get on extremely well, and it's, I think, a, a sort of compliment to him, if I'm allowed to do it in this particular context. You, you can because I've asked you the question. We couldn't do it if he asked you the question. Um, 
that it is the, it is the person behind the service, which is what it's all about. And I think that's that's what you're pointing to. And I've that's what we always felt was the key to the whole thing. The most important thing always was to tell to advise the client to do the thing that you felt was in their self-interest. And if anything's changed since we were practicing back in those days and today is a little bit of a question mark about whether the today's financial services industry always operates using that philosophy without being too explicit about it. No, I think that's a fair, very fair observation. I st stood back in my introduction, Martin, and um, our listeners couldn't hear, but you slightly raised an eyebrow when I called you a disruptor, but, but I think, um, which I entirely mean as a compliment, um, and I think is a bit of a theme of these podcasts, I can see with hindsight rather than having consciously done it when I sort of put the team of people together. But I suppose, you know, Phoenix in the city of the 1980s would have been, a dis would, as, as you said, is an unusual thing to have done. That um, most, many people were focused on effectively serving big institutions uh, and that where they stood within those institutions rather than coming with an entrepreneurial mindset. And I think there is a golden thread there that uh, you are and have been highly entrepreneurial in all that you've chosen to do. And so I suppose just looking, you found yourself back in a really big financial institution, Credit Suisse. Um, I can imagine, but I'd like to understand from you what what your next thought processes were that took you through to the next stage of your life and indeed going on to do some very entrepreneurial things in the world of philanthropy. Mm. Um, I think the answer is that I always knew that uh, from, from my own purely personal point of view, being in the financial services industry and even having the, the great adventure that, that we had with Phoenix Securities, and it was, it was terrific, that this was always a means to an end. It was not an end in itself. Um, I mean, the end in itself was obviously the accumulation of a certain amount of, of capital, which I'm deeply grateful even more grateful, the accumulation of a series of seriously close friendships with a group of incredibly high quality people who remain my very good friends to this day. And here we are 20 years, 22 years later since, since we finally stepped out of the business. So those were the ends but, but, but of that particular activity. But the real end, as far as I was concerned, was something different. I, I felt that I always felt that I was doing this in order to be able to do something else. And the something else, I didn't know what it was, <laughs> but I always had this sort of feeling that actually, you, if you have a responsibility in life, it's to leave the world at least a slightly better place than it was when you arrived. And I'm not sure that being the brokers to the big bang necessarily <laughs> qualifies under that description. Maybe it does to a degree. But that there was more to it than that. And I also had this strange feeling, and you may find this with other uh, entrepreneurs that you talk to, that the, the, the wealth that was accumulated wasn't really mine. It was sort of wealth that I had managed to steer in my direction, and my responsibility was therefore to do something constructive with it. So that was the sort of mindset behind setting Phoenix to DLJ, and we were lucky that there was a further step in the transaction, as you, as you know, with uh, with Credit Suisse. But then I was ready to go. I was ready to do something 
completely different. So we're now in the year 2000, which point I was 57 years old. And uh, so I got involved in some other quite interesting entrepreneurial ventures in the financial services world, which have been extremely interesting and actually surprisingly successful, as it's turned out. There is a theme developing here. <laughs> I'm probably one of the more fortunate people you've ever had the pleasure of meeting. Um, and so, and so, so to that extent, a part of my working week, as it were, was spent no longer as an executive, no longer running these enterprises, but getting involved in, in starting. I helped start a new investment management business, and then I got involved in a heavily involved, and still am actually, in a technology investment banking boutique, which has been fascinating and, and it's done really, really very well. But that wasn't the primary purpose. And I knew that the primary purpose was to get involved in some sort of philanthropic activity. But I knew it had to be as an activist. It, it, it wasn't just signing checks, not that there's anything at all wrong with signing checks. But And indeed, what we did when we started out, you probably remember this part, was, was we kind of practiced. We spent it several years practicing and probably making quite a number of stupid mistakes, making wrong judgments <coughs> and so on, but learning the trade of philanthropy, which is as much a trade if you like, as being an investment banker in the city. And in fact, in many ways, I'd say it's more difficult because, because being an investment banker, you know very clearly and precisely what your objectives are. Yes. Whereas with philanthropy, you don't necessarily know what they are. Every cause, when it comes to you, looks like a good one. So you've got to make some choices about what you want to do, where you can be effective, and all the rest of it. I found that as a challenge extremely interesting. And um, <clears throat> I think pr probably what really got me started on it was my involvement with the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment, which in fact went back to the mid-1980s, always interested in music, happened to bump into, you know, almost the musical equivalent of Phoenix Securities, a group of young musicians who were amongst the best and the brightest who wanted to start a new orchestra uh, who wanted to own it themselves, who did not want to be told what to do every day by a big name conductor, wanted to invite their conductors, choose their music, choose their location, where they would play, etc. And I said to myself, I like the sound of these chaps. <laughs> so, so Recognise some of those qualities. I like that, yeah, exactly. Yes. And got behind them and helped them in a, in a small scale philanthropy, but certainly helped them to quite a significant degree in raising money to enable them to become what is now known as the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment, which is one of the leading early music orchestras actually in the world. And so that experience told me that one had a contribution to make that was more than just signing a check. Uh, and so the experimentation led us to look at all kinds of things until one day we latched on the idea that if we could find something in the environmental field, that is something that we would like to have a, a shot at. So, so can I ask, it's clear from that explanation, which was fascinating, that you weren't driven by, or you were driven by a sense of purpose, which was to, to give back, make the world a better place. 
but it was less about a particular cause and more about where you could add value, make a difference, lend that experience. Would it be fair to say that they were the overarching needs that led to the environmental cause or was the environment also one of those those areas of interest that had always existed and you were able to bring the two together? No, I think, funnily enough, it's, it's sort of a bit of both and a bit of something else altogether. Um, it, it, it is that we decided at a certain stage uh, things had gone well enough that there was the possibility, the opportunity to do what we used to call a grand projet. We wanted to do one big project, but we hadn't a clue what it was. But we wanted to do something that was, you know, of greater substance and greater significance than anything else that we ever had done or probably ever would do in the future. Well, it's one thing to sit there and say, you know, I'd like to have a grand projet. It's a totally different thing altogether to go out and find it. Yes. <clears throat> and we looked up hill and down dale and, and spent years thinking about different things. And we, for a long time, thought it would be something in the musical world for obvious reasons. That's been my wife and my great interest. But I think it was, here's what to me in retrospect is the interesting thing about this. We had our children on our family trust from day one. They participated in all of the decisions that we made and all the uh, donations that we made, et cetera, et cetera. And one day they very quietly approached us and said, look, this is, we totally approve of what you're doing, mum and dad. In the musical world, this is all wonderful stuff. But we're sort of just wondering whether if you're going to continue to do this, we should recruit one or two more musicians onto the board of the foundation. Because we, you know, much as we admire what you're doing, classical music is, we, we like it, but, you know, it's not sort of our thing. And, you know, if, if you're no longer here, we want to make sure there's continuity. Or, or they said, dot, 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 um, perhaps you'd like to consider looking at one or two projects in a field that we're interested in. And as soon as those words came out, we knew what they were talking about. It's an emotional play. <laughs> <laughs> Quite skillfully done. Yes. <clears throat> and what they were talking about was, was the environment, both of them. Our son in particular had a very strong interest in working in and around the area of environmental change and so forth for quite a long time. Our daughter has always been very interested in it. So we kind of turned our radar going back to the radar game round and round, made, made sure there was a, a kind of environmental radar running as well. And it was just one of those things that, you know, through a whole series of conversations, which I had with people here and in America and in universities of one kind or another. And it was, it may be the one good idea that I've ever had in my life. I mean, genuinely good original idea, which was to set up in a major university an institution that was able to link the academics working in the field of climate change, environmental change, and so on, to the people who are actually going to, if, it, if we can do it, uh, going to do something about it, which yes. was public and private enterprise. Mm -hmm. And so on the back of that, and sort of on a whim, I went to see the Vice Chancellor of Oxford and I said, here's an idea. I'd done my little McKinsey presentation. And uh, he rather gratifyingly, he sort of slapped his head with his hand and he said, that's what we've been looking for all along. That is exactly what we want. Well, uh, that's when the fun starts, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I, and, and so that was, that was the Grand Projet. And actually, Martin, you were, 
you were very disciplined in how you looked for those Grand Projets. I remember that, or the Grand Projet. Um, but as you say, that's when the fun started. And I just, I mean, it, clearly um, the Smith School is going to have a lasting impact at Oxford and beyond Oxford. But just sticking from, I'd like to go on to that, but sticking for now with this entrepreneurial streak, what did you have to l- learn to get that off the ground? That might, you, Some of it might have been received learning from Phoenix, surrounding yourself with good people, all those things I'm sure was was crucial. But other, what other things did you have to learn operating in a very different sector, I wonder? Well, bear in mind, of course, that what I was putting forward to the Vice-Chancellor of Oxford, John Hood, at that time, was not the idea that I was going to lead this. It's not as though I was starting a business and I was the lead entrepreneur. It was I was putting an idea to them for them to embrace and for them to create the structure and for me to be then the uh, the founding father, the, the original funding partner, as it were, of, of the thing. So it's it's sort of a little different in that sense. Um, well, I think, I think in answer to your question, I thought I knew Oxford pretty well, having been an undergraduate there all those years ago and, and having kept quite close to Oxford and a lot of friends, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's not until you actually engage on a real life project that you discover you don't know it at all. <laughs> it is probably the most convoluted, most complex uh, feat of human organization that the, the human race has ever achieved. Um, and so uh, actually taking this idea and turning it into reality proved to be really quite challenging uh, for all concerned. I think an, another piece of, um, actually you talk about good advice, one friend who's involved in this whole field said to me early on, um, yeah, one of the things that you want to do actually is see if you can get your old friends at McKinsey involved in this. And I hadn't really had a lot of contact with McKinsey. I still obviously on good terms with them. But anyway, I went to McKinsey and I met somebody called Jeremy Oppenheim, who was leading their environmental practice at that time, who's a rather brilliant man, I think, and told him what we were trying to do at Oxford. And he also said he thought this was absolutely a first class idea and volunteered to provide us with, I can't remember, but something like eight or 10 man weeks of consulting time. You can think what the value of that is, you know, to help us put together the business plan, not because we actually intellectually needed to have somebody else tell us what the business plan was, but to give it the authority of a third party, not any old third party, but McKinsey saying, you know, putting their rubber stamp on it and saying that this is a credible plan. That proved to be incredibly important and is what enabled us to get the initial support of the governing body of Oxford behind this thing. But then off you go. You have to find somebody to lead it and you have to find some people to join it. And you have to deal with the fact that that in a place like Oxford, when you start something new, what you're going to face is, is large numbers of very clever people saying, uh, well, that's all very interesting, but of course you do understand that we are already doing all that. Uh, that. That is very much the sort of, you know, not invented here kind of approach, and which was quite frustrating in the early years. And I was sort of pushing and shoving as hard as I could, could from the wings to address that particular issue. I do remember one conversation with 
John Hood, who's somebody I admire greatly uh, as vice chancellor, uh, saying to him, uh, John, can you give me a, a, a clue? How do you actually influence academics? And he said, oh, no, that's easy. The way you influence academics is you move the food bowl. <laughs> I discovered that that was exactly right. There was a certain moment at which funding started to flow in. You may, may remember that uh, um, we, we suddenly got a, a, a large slug of government funding, in fact, after we've been going for about three or four years, which turned into about 25 million pounds. In the end, suddenly all these academics who were saying no, 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 were banging on our door saying, um, you know, I might just be available to help you with this <laughs> project. And so the tide turned and off we went. But I think the essence is, is the same, but as always is, you know, you're as good in all of these kinds of people ventures as your leader. And I think we've done very well with our We've had three leaders so far over the last 16 years. I think we've had incredibly good people and therefore, and consequently, the people that they've drawn around them. And that has kind of defined the franchise of what the Smith School is. You are very modest, I think, Martin, about uh, how groundbreaking it was, though. And I think you were very methodical in how you ensured, to the best of your ability that it was going to be a success and I would just that that sort of moment where the electrodes touched you know, the environment and commerce or business what what caused that leap because I think you know you you have been the first in an academic institution perhaps anywhere to join those two when did you see that gap well I think it really was a sort of as I say I I, I haven't had that many good ideas in my life but I think this was you know, that particular afternoon, I was Archimedes in the bath. I mean, it, it just sort of, I'd been talking to so many people about this whole thing, including Jeremy Smith, my son, and others, other people, professionals, etc., about it. And it just suddenly dawned on me that the missing link here is you've got very clever people in the universities, whether they're economists or physicists or lawyers or business school professors, all kinds of really interesting people engaged in research in the field of environmental change, but they're not really sort of connected to the, um, you know, the, 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 the organizations, the key people who are actually going to affect that change. I mean, that was, that was the sort of moment of realization, I think, kind of eureka moment, that if we could find some way of doing that and really focusing on that relationship, and I think, I mean, you kind of say what you've said. I, I, I think we, we did, as it turned out, rather unexpectedly, manage to identify the most sensitive intervention point in the whole environmental debate rather earlier than other people did. Uh, and, as, and like everything else in life, if you do it and you start to create momentum and you, you begin then to collect other people around you who believe in this philosophy and so on, and then you get support in the outside world, whether, whether it's uh, DFID who provided our government money or we've now got a number of uh, major corporations. We do, I mean, a major Swiss bank called Lombard Odier has just funded one of our professorships and so on. So what happens is momentum begins to generate its own success. And, and, 
and we we managed to start it early enough that by the time the current round of interest in the environment as a major issue really began to take off, which I would say sort of COP26, in the year before COP26 and thereafter, by the time that happened, the curve began to tick up quite seriously, not just amongst the specialists and the experts, but amongst people generally, Greta Thunberg and all the rest yes. of it. We were kind of there ready and waiting. We had the, the, the machine. First mover advantage. We had the first mover yes. advantage. So I think, that's, I think that's the answer to your question. It's absolutely fascinating. And what would you say, I mean, really for the benefit of those listening who won't know, necessarily know the school as well as, as you and I do, what would you say would be the two or three things you would most like to consider its legacy, its main legacy so far? More to come, I'm sure, but so far. Oh, so far, um, I think we've had already a significant impact on the thinking about the way in which the capital markets need to evolve in order to support and get behind climate change, environmental change, and to create an environment in which companies both have the stick and the carrot, both the incentive and also you know, the force of regulation uh, to steer them in a completely different direction, um, which is, if, if you take the view that I do, which is we're in the middle of, middle of an industrial revolution in going ex-fossil fuels. Anything that can encourage companies and help public institutions as well to steer us in that direction. And obviously the capital markets, which is a world that I know, which we all around this table know, very well. The capital markets are an incredibly important influence. There are lots of other things that are incredibly important as well. But uh, but I think this is this is one where we have already begun to have uh, a significant impact on people's thinking, starting with the Bank of England and going on down, and not just in the UK but internationally as well. So I think that's that's been uh, very important. I, I think some of the work that we've been doing in the whole field of carbon capture and storage, some very big initiatives in, in that whole uh, area and what role that's going to play and how that becomes a, a sort of viable part of the net zero economy looking out over the next 25 years or so. I think uh, third parties would look at what we've been doing and saying that's quite important. I think a third thing I would say is... To, to me, well, I think I've said this to you before, but I think what I, I find encouraging and exciting, really, about it is the fact that we're we're producing DPhil students at the rate of probably about fifteen a year, and we just uh, started a new master's program, an MSc in uh, the environment and sustainability, um, and this year we had twenty eight master's students. Uh, and for those positions, we had, believe it or not, 750 applications from all around the world. So clearly, we're on to something. Yes. And I, I just, I suppose one of the thrills I get out of this is, is watching those students go through the school and getting the, the, the benefit of, of just these extraordinary minds and this extraordinary knowledge base that has been d developed over the last 16 years. And just thinking about what they are going to finish up doing as they go out. And these are all extremely clever people. Of course, they are 
in their mid late 20s or so who will go off and they'll finish up running companies and, and running uh, government institutions and maybe even running governments uh, at some point in the future. And that, that in the end may turn out, in addition to the research that I've been talking about, that may turn out to be the biggest uh, effect on the world, going back to our leaving it a slightly better place if we can. Yeah. That, that may be it. I mean, I think hearing that, that thread of harnessing the power of capital, I mean, it may sound obvious, that money makes the world go round in many ways, but it is not capital for the sake of it. It's the ability to recognise whether it's the capital markets and their ability to actually get things done. Because when you harness the ability to make investments to back the science, it really makes a massive difference. And I think it, it leads me to the question, I guess, what are the big differences between running a financial services business very successfully and being a successful philanthropist. Are there differences? Yes. <laughs> so I had a sneaky suspicion you might ask me this question. <laughs> Nothing if not obvious. Yes. Yes. Um, no, and I've thought about this quite a bit. Um, I think one of the most important differences is that um, is finance, when you're in the f commercial world, is a primary objective. Whereas I think in the philanthropic world, and the two that I've obviously I've been talking about that I know well, one is the arts and music, the other being academe. It is a condition of success, but it is not the primary objective. And you've got to latch on to the primary objective. And it's much harder to do that, I think, actually, I mean, I, I look back on the development of Phoenix and all that wonderful stuff that we did uh, in the 20th century as being a much easier proposition than what I've been involved in in the philanthropic world. Um, also, you're talking about, in the commercial world, organizations that are, forgive me for saying this in this august house, but are relatively speaking institutionalized yes. and where there is a common culture. Whereas in both the arts world, I'm speaking about the ones that the philanthropic activists I happen to know about, but in the arts world and most definitely in the world of academe, you're talking about sole traders who are corralled into doing something because they think it's more in their interest to do it together than it would be to do it separately. Providing leadership to those kinds of people is a completely different proposition. Um, I remember once saying to Vivian Duffield, who somebody I've been a sort of friend in a way over many years, and talking about Oxford, and I said to her, the thing about Oxford, it seems to me it's a bit like a workers' cooperative. And she said, a bit more like a workers' uncooperative, if you ask me. <laughs> so defining a sense of purpose in, w within that philanthropic environment is, f is critical? I think it's it, it most definitely de uh, defining a vision yes. that people uh, latch on to, believe in, and want to pursue. But it's also creating an environment with a smallie um, in which they feel comfortable, happy, positive, 
you know, want to come in every day, really want to make their contribution. That's possibly not different to Charles Russell or other, other organizations, but you're just dealing with people who have a much greater sense of their own personal independence. So you possibly have to be a little bit more persuasive. Yeah, I mean, I would certainly recognize that from our own business that actually we it is easier to define that sense of purpose because there is a commonality in terms of the background, how we've ended up working together in partnership. Um, but I also recognize the challenge that you alluded to earlier. I wouldn't say that we're as challenging as Oxford, but certainly you are engaging with people who have strong views, um, have been successful in their own right, and actually that that sense of purpose for us has been very important as a business because it does give you a, a, a common thread that unifies, unifies all of us. But I, I also recognise the fact that it is easier for a professional services business to do that than it must be for, a, um, for academe or, or indeed the arts where you don't have that common experience. People come into the area from a different background and bring their own skill set, and as you say, sole traders. And as I say, to go back to the beginning, where the definition of success is more, much more ambiguous. Yes, <clears throat> and harder to measure, I suspect. And harder to measure. So, you know, if you're successful in investment banking, investment management, anything within the square mile that we're sitting in, you know, we all know what the measure is. It's, it's perfectly straightforward. And as you know, as I know, <clears throat> there are plenty of organisations out there that have achieved success by that measure you know, the, quite sort of organisationally chaotic underneath it, but somehow managed to get there. And that it's that measure, it's that goal that keeps it all together, keeps keeps everybody on the on the track. But uh, in, in these philanthropic organisations, you don't have that, you know, quite as easily defined common goal, and you have to create it. We've had to create that in in the Smith School, which is. I mean, we had this rather funny name for the Smith, the Smith School of Enterprise and the Environment. I think it's turned out to be quite successful because it actually says what it is. Yes. It's a bit like the orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment. And I remember sitting around the table, I mean, we're now back in the mid-80s, with that rather brilliant group of musicians talking about what the name of the orchestra was. And I have to admit, I was the one who was sitting there saying, are you crazy? I mean, you're really going to call it the orchestra of the age of now? Well, of course, as it's turned out, that is a brand name. And once you've established the brand, almost, you know, the more um, idiosyncratic it is, the better you are, the better off you are. The power of a brand, indeed. The power of a brand. Charles Russell's speechless. <laughs> Can I ask one more question about the Smith School, Martin, or about the environment, perhaps, before we leave that? And as we've said, you were you were early, certainly, into into the um, thought that uh, there needed to be this link between uh, academic environmental research and enterprise, uh, probably the first. Um, as you look now, and clearly the, the world has more widely awakened to concerns about environmental change, are you filled with hope? or anxiety, or a mixture of the two? Well, definitely a mixture of the two. I think anybody who says anything else is, is sort of kidding you and kidding themselves. Um, there is great anxiety about the fact that um, the rate of progress on so many fronts of all the things that have to happen, we've adopted this 
target of net zero, which I think is quite a handy target, net zero by 2050. But, you know, as every year goes by, as we know, there is a whole lot of things that have to be done in order to maintain progress and to stand some chance of getting there and the, and the famous one and a half degrees. And they're not happening anything like fast enough. So one is quite apprehensive about whether or not the rate of change, what they're doing down in Sharm El Sheikh right now, you know, is going to be sufficient to really have a credible chance of getting to that goal of net zero by 2050, one and a half degrees. I would say it's pretty finely balanced at this point. But then there's another part of me that says, you know, this is an industrial revolution and it is going to create the sort of opportunities that were created in the previous industrial revolution of creating entirely new industries. I mean, obviously, we know all about solar panels and we know about uh, wind farms and all that stuff. Uh, but we're still in the relatively early stages of things like nuclear fusion, hydrogen-based fuel, the whole question of fuel dis uh, energy distribution around the economy, how do we manage it, etc., etc. I mean, there's just... It's, it, the list is almost endless. And, and the good news is, I know from my own experience, the, the, there are entrepreneurs out there, I mean, armies of them out there who are beavering away in their garages, you know, to create the industries, the, the great new industries of the future. So that's the bit that makes me, and human nature being what it is, those people will succeed. Yes. We will get to ex-fossil fuel, uh, fuels, the question is how much damage is done to the human race in getting from here to there. But it is worth always reminding ourselves of the huge progress over the last few years in terms of wider public perception. And I know in some parts of the world it isn't in the forefront of public perception as it maybe is in the UK and, and the US and elsewhere in Europe. But the advance in technology that you refer to is making a difference to everybody's lives and everyone understands the issue, which in my experience at least is the hardest part. Whether, and I understand that there are climate change deniers out there and people who disagree with the science, but the subject matter is on the agenda and I think people accept there is a problem and that change is happening in the vast majority of, of most of the advanced societies. And that gives us a chance. And I guess that's the point you're, you made far more eloquently than I just attempted yeah, I think to. That's, I, think that's, uh, I think that's very well said. I think if we look at it from the perspective of our school, we've sort of got, got to the stage, forgive me, but we kind of ignored the climate change deniers. I mean, they're in such a minority. Yes. And they're so, I'm sorry to say, discredited for anybody who's got even an inkling of what the, the scientific facts here are that there's no point in wasting time we haven't got time to argue the toss with them no. I, I think the biggest issue we face is the vested interest of the fossil fuel industry yes which is undeniable and indeed you can't i mean unlike the students in the streets of oxford waving placards saying we must stop investing in fossil fuels you know as so though you can just kind of turn a switch off and go to a new economy well, you can't because there's so much vested interest in that 
industry, so many people employed in it, so many people whose energy requirements are totally dependent on starting with coal, I'm afraid. Mm -hmm. And you can't just suddenly say to all these people in India and China and so on, just stop right now. This is not acceptable. The world isn't like that. So we're we're plotting a path to get from here to there. And we're progressing. I just hope we're progressing fast enough. And, And again, the reassuring piece, I guess, is that any successful business, including those oil companies and, and carbon companies, they recognise that they will become redundant if they don't change. And so they are investing in research and technology because they want to continue to be successful and valuable and viable businesses moving forward. So again, by highlighting the challenges and what needs to be done, we are even turning those who have a self-interested perspective into part of the solution if we get it right. Yes, but it takes time. I, you know, I'm I'm somewhat involved in uh, Oxford, the process by which Oxford accepts donations. This is unrelated to what we've just been talking about, but donations from anybody from anywhere, and there's been such an extraordinary increase in focus on donations, possible donations from fossil fuel related businesses. And we now have a set of criteria that have been set up actually at Oxford that basically have to be satisfied, which are to do with, you know, being convinced that the, if a company is giving us money, it has accepted certain principles about what the direction of travel is, the way it's going to be managed, the fact that there is an existing plan to get from here to there etc those mm. kinds of things i mean you would be right in saying well why the hell didn't we do this 10 years ago or 20 years ago well it doesn't matter anymore we are where we are and and uh, and i think efforts are being made in the right direction at least but it does show the pace of change it does so i think we've finished with the long form questions and we always like to finish these podcasts with a few quick fire questions that are a little more lighthearted um because we've we've had some Amazing insights into your your journey, Sir Martin. But I think um, these are a little bit of fun, so hopefully um, everyone will find them interesting. So what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? And and to, to spare my colleagues' blushes, you, it can be something that Bart's said to you. <laughs> or not. <laughs> that goes without question. <laughs> As being amongst the best pieces of advice I've ever received. Uh, I'm going to slightly disappoint. My answer is is a peculiarly personal one, which was when I was um, finishing at Stanford Business School. I had to make a decision as to whether or not to propose to my future wife. And I had an uncle who was quite a, a godfather, rather, who was quite a successful businessman in Toronto. So I managed to get myself a job interview in Toronto simply in order to go and talk to him about this. Yeah. So he sat me down and he said, okay, what's it all about? And I described the whole story from beginning to end. And I said to him, what do you think? He said, you've already made your mind up. I think that was the best piece of single, <laughs> single piece of advice I've ever, ever received. <laughs> or a great act of deflection. Who knows? <laughs> um, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Well, I thought about that a little bit. Um, I think what I'd tell my 20-year-old self is, you know, calm down. It, it'll all be okay. Um, it'll, it, 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 you keep doing the right things in the right way. You'll get there in the end. I think I would specifically say, 
it's about working hard. It's about, I've used this term, the radar. And to me, yes. that's always been a very important sort of um, aspect of life, image in my life, if you like. And most importantly, more than anything else, the thing that I think sorts out the men from the boys, the people who succeed from those who don't, is people skills. Particularly in the worlds that we've been talking about today. If you're in in a people world, a service world, an educational world, a cultural world, an artistic world, and so on, it's work on your people skills. Just f try and figure out what the chap on the other side of the table is thinking about and what words you can use to persuade them to do what you want them to do. Excellent. Um, what's your favorite book? Um, because I can't remember most of the books I've ever read, but looking back in recent times, I would say A Gentleman in Moscow by a gentleman in New York called Amor Towles. And A, because I think it's such a brilliant book, and I'm not going to start trying to describe why I think it is, but I just think it is. Everybody should read it. And B, because he was an investment manager who suddenly at the age of 50-something, uh, decided he'd sort of done with investment management. He wanted management. He wanted to try something else, and he wrote this book. Well, and it's brilliant. I admire him for doing that. Brilliant. And my favourite question: Who would play you in a film about your life? Well, I thought about that as well, and my answer is Nigel Hawthorne, who, as you will recall, is Sir Humphrey. Yes. In Yes Minister, I just love Sir Humphrey. I think that dry wit and the fact, and he's so smart and he always gets his way in the end. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, thank you ever so much for answering those questions. So first of all, thank you for joining us today. Um, it's always my honor to try and draw these conversations to a close. And I think today we've, we've heard a lot about the radar, but I think there is an underlying theme about opportunity spotting, um, that underlying attitude to leaving the world in a better place, um, people and the importance of being able to influence people. There's a certain restlessness to Sir Martin's career and life in terms of always wanting to move, move things forward to make a difference. And through philanthropy, that's one way of really making a difference as an activist to a cause and not just simply writing the checks. Uh, and of course, never underestimating the power of a brand and the power of capital, because uh, that makes stuff happen. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Sir Martin. Thank you, Bart. Uh, until the next time, thank you very much. Thank you, Martin. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Client Conversations with Sir Martin Smith. We'd like to let you know about another episode of Client Conversations with Neil Hedges, partner at Headland Consultancy. Click on the link in the show notes to find out more.